Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I want to start by asking you a question. What, what do you need to remember? What's, what do you need to remember? Um, we have to remember lots of things, don't we? Uh, where, where you put your keys. Um, the 5th of November. Um, your homework. Your wedding anniversary. Some, some of you might know that we, we lived um, in Rwanda for um, a couple of years. And every year from April the 7th, to July the 4th um, is Kwebuka. Um, it means remember. And for 100 days, the country remembers the genocide when nearly a million people were murdered in 1994. In today's passage, um, Paul wants us to remember Let's have a look. Um, page 1175. It would be great to have that open as we go through. Um, look there at verse 11. Therefore, remember. Verse 12. Remember. It's the, it's the only imperative in, in this passage. We're told to remember. Now, maybe you're quite good at remembering things. Or, or maybe you've just realized you've forgotten where your keys are. But this isn't a memory test. Uh, Paul isn't giving us a list of things to remember, and then he's going to test us on them. 
Um, it's not the conveyor belt on the generation game, if you can remember what that was. Now, when Paul tells us to remember something, it's to make, it's to make a difference to the way we think, to the way we behave. We're to remember so that we change to be more like the people God wants us to be. As some of you might have discovered, there's no point remembering uh, your wedding anniversary if you don't do anything about it, if you don't even get a card. Or imagine uh, your mum says, have you, have you remembered your homework? Yes, I haven't forgotten. I've got lots of maths and history. You can't turn up at school the next day and, and tell the teacher that you remembered. You just decided not to actually do any of it. Rwanda doesn't remember the genocide as an intellectual exercise. They remember the past so that they don't repeat it. They remember the awfulness of the genocide, of division and death, to motivate unity and renewal. So let's see what it is that Paul wants us to remember here in Ephesians and why he wants us to remember it. But before we do that, let's, um, let's recap quickly on what we learned last week um, from verses 1 to 10. Um, no. Because verse 11 starts with, therefore, therefore, remember. Remember remember what I'm about to tell you in the next few verses because of what I've just told you in the last few verses. God is going to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 10. That's the big picture of God's eternal plan to bring everything together in Jesus. And in, in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2, we've seen how God is uniting us to himself in Jesus. It's all by grace. We were, we were dead in our sins, but God, in his mercy and love, made us alive with Christ. His resurrection power has saved us. It's made us alive. It's seated us in heaven, united to Jesus. We were walking in sin, but now he's made us alive to walk in good works that he's prepared for us. Remembering where we were before Jesus, before Jesus saved us, that motivates us to live the Christian life now, humbly and joyfully. And so in verses 11 to 22, Paul follows a very similar pattern to verses 1 to 10. From, From where we were to where we are in Christ. But whereas the focus of the first 10 verses was was on that vertical relationship between us and God, the focus of 11 to 22 is, is on the horizontal between each other. From, from uniting us to him in verses 1 to 10, to uniting us to one another in verses 11 to 22. God is uniting all things together in Jesus, and that includes uniting Christians together in Christ. That's what we're to remember. That's our motivation for living out the Christian life together as God's people, as his church. So as we look at these verses, I've got three headings, three things to remember, our problem, our peace, and our purpose. 
So firstly, our problem. Our problem. Verses 11 and 12, our problem is that we were separated. We were separated. Let me read those verses again. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Back in verse 1, our our problem was described as death. In relationship to God, we were spiritually dead. In these verses here, our problem is described as separation. They're different pictures of the same reality. The awfulness of of sin and the the effects of sin. That language of death and and wrath in verse 3, that stresses God's judgment. The language of separation here, of alienation, of strangers... In verse 12, that stresses the brokenness of our relationships. Now, Paul is writing mainly to to Gentiles, that is, people who who aren't Jewish. That's, That's true for most of us here today. And he reminds us that at one time, before we followed Jesus, we were separated from Christ. We didn't follow Jesus. We didn't know him. We hadn't been saved by him. We weren't united to him. We were separated from him. Which means we were also separated, alienated from God's people. It's called the commonwealth of Israel. Jesus is God's king. And and if we're separated from him, we're not his citizens. We're not his people. We don't belong to his kingdom. It's if we're not God's people, if we're not in his kingdom, then we don't enjoy his blessings. So that we're strangers to his covenant, his promise to be with his people, his promises to to love and care for and bring his people home. (coughs) We're strangers to all that. So we have no hope. We're in the world without God. It's a terrible place to be, cut off from God and his people, separated. The Jewish people, on the other hand, did have God's promises. Christ Christ was their promised king and saviour. God would be with his people. And through them, God wanted to bless all nations. When God made, made his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, he says, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And as a sign of that covenant, Jewish boys were circumcised. But here's the tragedy. The symbol of that covenant... The reminder that God wanted to bless all nations through the witness of his people, Israel. That that symbol, that circumcision, had itself become the symbol of division and hatred. In the ancient world, the division between Jew and Gentile was the most hateful. So rather than grasping the the spiritual significance of what it it meant to be God's people and, and, and the need to bring others to him, Circumcision had become a a merely outward, physical ritual. Look at that, you Gentiles in the flesh. The circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. That that physical marker of cultural identity had, had become a term of abuse. Those words, uncircumcision and circumcision, they sound clinical in English. 
But in the first century, they could be used as horribly dehumanizing ethnic slurs. You Gentiles, you Jews, each effectively call the other the scum of the earth. To turn the symbol of the very thing that should have brought blessing into an expression of hatred. How tragic. How sadly very human. If we can turn a promise of blessing into hatred, how much more will we create division and hatred anywhere? And of course we do, everywhere, every day. Humans divide and separate from, from other humans, call them names, hate each other because of their identity, their nationality, their skin color, their class, their gender. All sorts of things divide us. I guess, I guess many people here have experienced that sort of discrimination and abuse. The slurs and abuse that dehumanizes. And some of you may have experienced the worst of what happens when whole people groups are dehumanized. In Rwanda, the Tutsis were called cockroaches, and then they were murdered as less than human. Today, Ukrainians are called Nazis to justify killing them. Now, we haven't experienced this first century hatred of, of Jew and Gentile, but we see all sorts of 21st century Hatred and division, that separation between people that reflects the separation of people from God. Why remember this? I think for two main reasons. Firstly, because it, it reminds us just how bad we are by nature. And how we must expect division and hatred in, in this fallen world. Don't be surprised by it. Don't, don't be surprised when we see it in this country today. I don't think there's anything about, about me or you that is, is going to restore relationships by nature. Because I'm lost. I'm, I'm hopeless. No, it keeps me humble. I can't sort this out. I need to come to Christ. And secondly, because if I remember how bad things are without Christ how lost and hopeless my friends are, how separated they are from God and his people, it will stir me to love and compassion for them, to long for them to be included in God's commonwealth, not to be strangers. Remember, you were separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. But... But now, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That leads us to our second heading. Verses 13 to 18, our peace. Our peace. Jesus reconciled us. Jesus reconciled us. The great, the great news in, in verses 1 to 10 is that, is that God has made dead people alive. In, in verses 11 to 22, the great news is that God reconciles people who are separated. Death needs life. Separation needs reconciliation. Jesus brings peace. Four times it says peace in these five verses. Let's read them again. For he himself is our peace 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the laws of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jesus is our peace. In him, hopeless Gentiles, separated from God and his people, those who are far off, are brought near. And he's, he's done it by his blood through his death on the cross. He's our peace because he's made us one. Both Jew and Gentile are one in Jesus. We're, we're not just brought near to God, but near to each other. In the um, Jewish temple, there was a sign that warned Gentiles not to go inside on pain of death. Only Jews could go beyond the balustrade that divided the court of Gentiles from, from the rest of the temple. And that was the dividing wall. That was, that was one of the commandments and ordinances. And those divisions have been blown out of the water. Jesus abolished uh, the law of commandments, both in the sense that he fulfilled all the ceremonial requirements of, of the Old Testament, and by taking on himself the punishment that we deserve for our sin. So there's no longer any, any condemnation for those who are in Christ. And God's people are, are no longer marked by circumcision or Old Testament laws. We, we all come to God through Jesus. <coughs> So the division between God and his people has gone, and the division between God's people has gone. Instead of two people, Jew and Gentile, he's created one new person. That's the new man, the new human, the person at peace with God and with all who are in Christ. I think our culture recognizes um, there is a problem with the way we, we are as humans. Uh, we, we know we want an end to hatred, but I think we look for our solutions in the wrong place. So we think political or scientific progress is, is going to bring an end to war and, and oppression. But the last hundred years have, have seen death and inhumanity on, on a scale beyond anything seen before. Millions killed in world wars and the Holocaust. And even when there does sometimes seem to be reconciliation through politics, the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland or the reconciliation processes in uh, South Africa or Rwanda. You scratch beneath the surface. And so much of the old distrust and division is still there. There's still much resentment and hatred. Now don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm, I'm not saying that it's, it's not a good thing when there's progress in politics, but that progress is only ever a shadow of the, of the unity that Christ brings. And I'm not saying that Christians always demonstrate that peace and unity. We don't. There are countless examples of disunity and war between Christians. But that's because we still live in a, in a sinful world. And our sinfulness always gets in the way. No, the, the perfect peace 
And unity is not what politicians create. It's not even what Christians create. It's what God has created in Jesus. It's in the new humanity that God has already made. And everyone who trusts in him, who follows him, who is united to him, who is in him, they are the new humanity. It's through Jesus that we have access together in one spirit to the Father. We are, we are really united. One new person in Jesus. That is the real peace. Eternal peace. And if the greatest human division between Jew and Gentile is broken down by Jesus, how much more does he break down any other human division? In Christ, all those other human barriers, race and class and gender, they're all abolished. We are one in Christ. And that's the, the peace that Paul says we're to preach. That's the peace that was preached to those who were far off and those who were near, verse 17. The same message to Jew and Gentile, the same message in Bromley and and Brisbane, the same message for men and women, rich and poor, black, Asian, white, the good news of Jesus in whom we have peace. Why remember that? Well, again, a couple of reasons. I think, firstly, we should make use of our access to the Father, our audience with him, we, we can come before him in prayer. Fall before God in thankfulness. There was nothing we could do to bring peace. It's all Jesus' work. It's only in him that we have peace. It's only by his death on the cross. Thank you, Jesus. And secondly, because if we do love our friends who don't yet know that peace then this is a peace that they need to hear. Verse 17, the word preached peace is literally evangelized peace. The good news that our friends need, the good news that the world needs, is the news that in Jesus we can have peace. Peace with God, peace with each other. And let's pray that God would bring them this peace and that we would proclaim it. But we also need to remember all this so that... We live it out. Jesus died to bring peace, to make us the new humanity in him, so that we live like it. So that's our third heading. This is the last few verses, 19 to 22. This is our purpose. Our purpose to to be together or to grow together. So then, says Paul, so then. Because of this peace that Jesus has brought, this peace that ends the separation, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we're no longer the the strangers and aliens that we were in verse 12. And now we're God's people, fellow citizens in his kingdom, family members of his household. A household that is growing, it's being built, it's being built up into a temple, a place for God to dwell with his people by his spirit. 
I think sometimes we can be tempted into thinking that we've been, we've been saved from sin, from death, from separation. We're now forgiven. We have peace, and, and that's it. But Jesus brings life, and life is lived. Living things grow. The, the peace and unity that Jesus brings is dynamic and exciting. It's lived out in real, restored relationships. God's people are at peace with him and each other. And they're being built up together, growing together. If you remember our, our um, studies in Exodus earlier this year, you remember how it all came together in the tabernacle. God dwelling among his people. And then later in, in Israel's history, in the temple. And Paul's using the same language here. God's people, God's new humanity, his united, his together people, are where God lives among us. That means this church, we together, are God's dwelling place. God is with us. So how do we grow together? How is this, this household, this structure, this temple built up? Well, we've already seen that it's, it's only made possible in Jesus by his blood. The cornerstone of God's humanity, God's new humanity, is, is Jesus himself. He's the starting point on which everything else depends. But Paul also describes the foundations here, the, the apostles and prophets, the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles. They're no longer with us, but we have their teaching here in the Bible. So our foundation is God's word. That's how we're built up. That's how we grow. That's how we're equipped for the work of ministry, building up the body of Christ. Through the teaching of God's word, we'll only grow as a church, as God's family, if we're in Christ, listening to his words. But what will it look like to grow together? Well, that's, that's what much of chapters 4 to 6 are about. What it looks like to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called with all humility and gentleness. But I want to finish by focusing on that specific question of togetherness. Paul stresses it so much in these last few verses. He's emphasized that the problem of our separation before we knew, knew Jesus. He's emphasized how Jesus brings peace to create a new humanity, and now he's emphasizing our being together people. That's what we're for, to be and grow together as God's people with God in our midst. Now, Paul tells us specifically about ethnic separation, reconciliation, Jew and Gentile, and if Jesus can deal with that, the most, the most hateful and bitter divide, how much more can he deal with? with all our other divisions. So our togetherness is going to cross all those barriers that divide people today. If, if our church just reflects the divisions of society, what sort of church is it? Does it really know the peace that Jesus brings? Jesus died to bring people together in him, for us to live that out, to grow together in peace. And it is so encouraging when we see that here, when there's visible love and unity between those of us who are different ages, different backgrounds, different ethnicities. But it's not something to take for granted or think that we're already there. We need to grow in this. And there may, be, there may still be ways in which we exclude others that we need to repent of. Maybe we can make more effort to, to share our lives and our homes with those 
for those within this church who look different from us or sound different from us, to include more people from different backgrounds in all areas of our church life. Let's think through who we choose to talk to over coffee or who we invite home for lunch, the small groups we join, the ministry teams we serve with, the people we pray with. There's going to be much um, more about how we love one another and serve one another um, once we get to chapter four. But, we're, but if we're going to live out real peace among us, we need to remember. Remember the Rwandans remember the genocide in an attempt to renew and unite. And we as Christians need to remember to be the new humanity. United in Christ, united together. We need to remember where we came, where we came from, what Jesus did to bring peace, and what it means to live in that peace together. But if we're going to live it, we need to pray for it. And that's exactly what Paul does next. In, in chapter 2, he's told us how God is bringing all things together in Christ, how he's uniting us to God, how he's uniting us to each other. And so in chapter 3, he falls into prayer. And praise, a prayer that God would strengthen the Ephesians through his spirit, that, that Christ would dwell in them, that they would really know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So let's pray. Let's pray now. Our Father, thank you that in your Son, Jesus, we have been saved from separation, reconciled to you and each other. Please help us humbly and gratefully remember so that we long for those who don't yet know Jesus to know the peace that he brings. Please help us remember so that we at Christ Church would grow together and live out that peace day by day. In Jesus' name. Amen.